Lately, I've been thinking a lot about squirrels. And not just squirrels, but raccoons, opossums, cockroaches, pigeons, all the animals that live around us in and near our homes. And not just the animals only, but plants too. The trees that line the streets, bushes, grasses, even the weeds that pop up in the cracks in the sidewalk. Now, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and most people, when they think about evolution, they think about what happened millions of years ago in the distant past. And they think that evolutionary biologists study that ancient history. And we do do that. We look at fossils to trace the evolution of, of species through time. More recently, we look at the DNA, compare DNA of species, but again, to draw inferences about ancient events from millions of years ago. So why would an evolutionary biologist care about animals that live around us? Well, the reason is that over the last 50 years or so, I think one of the most exciting findings, certainly in biology, maybe even in all of science, is that evolution can happen very quickly. That even around us today, evolution is going on, and it's going on at a pace that we can actually study it. That's something that Darwin didn't think was at all possible, but now we know it's true. But still, people who are studying evolution, contemporary evolution, are studying it still out in nature for the most part, in nature and woods, on islands and so on. And they haven't been looking at the actual plants and animals we live with in our urban lifestyles, the ones all around us. And so the question that really interests me is, is evolution happening in cities? Is it affecting the species that live in our midst? Are they adapting to our presence? And this is a topic that evolutionary biologists have just begun to pick up on. And I think it's very exciting to think that the animals we coexist with are adapting to live with us. And so that's the question I've been, I've been thinking a lot about. Now, before getting to that question, I just want to give a little bit of background. As I mentioned, Darwin would have been surprised that people would be interested in this. And the reason is that Darwin thought that evolution proceeded incredibly slowly, that it would take thousands of years for a perceptible change to occur. But if you think about it, there were no data back in Darwin's time about evolution. He, he created the field. And so his inference, his intuition about the pace of evolution was just that. It was intuition. There were no evidence. And in fact, he borrowed his ideas not from science, but from Victorian sensibilities about the appropriate pace of change in life in general. As you know, in the middle of the 19th century, when Darwin lived and, and wrote his great book, Life was changing very quickly, the Industrial Revolution and, and other changes. And for people of the upper class, such as Darwin, they weren't so thrilled about this. And so in their worldview, change should occur very slowly. And so bar, uh, Darwin borrowed this idea from the social context, applied it to his thinking about evolution. And that's why he thought that evolution must proceed very closely, very slowly. Well, Darwin was an incredible scientist. He had amazing insights about the natural world. He figured out all kinds of interesting ideas. He figured out where coral atolls, how they form. He figured out the role that worms play in aerating the soil, and many other ideas. And of course, his great idea, evolution by natural selection. And so you're not going to make a lot of money betting against Darwin. And so when Darwin said that evolution proceeded slowly, the field took him at his word. And for about a century, evolutionary biologists, all scientists, followed Darwin's lead, presumed that evolution must occur very slowly. In about the middle of the last century, things began to change. And the first evidence of that 
was the development of antibiotics like penicillin. Penicillin was the wonder drug that was going to make infectious disease a thing of the past. But very quickly, once we started using penicillin, bacteria evolved resistance to it. And as every new antibiotic came along, very quickly resistance evolved. There was one, one antibiotic that only lasted two years before resistance appeared. At the same time, we were developing pesticides to apply to insects and to rats. We were developing herbicides to apply to weeds. And the same thing happened. The species quickly evolved resistance to our chemicals. And so we could see that evolution was occurring quite rapidly. And then the famous study in the mid-1950s of the peppered moth in England, the moth that initially had been very light in color and blended into light-colored trees, and then during the Industrial Revolution, when soot was blown into the air by all these factories, the trees got dark and cover, uh, the trees became dark because of all the soot that covered them, the moths evolved to become dark, to match the background of these trees. And in the 1950s, a scientist documented how that had happened over the course of just a few decades. And so these examples illustrated that evolution could occur very rapidly. But there still was one, one caveat, one out, if you will, for Darwin. And that was that all of these changes that species were adapting to were all man-made changes in the environment. We were radically changing the environment through pollution, through the use of chemicals and so on. And so maybe these evolutionary changes weren't typical of what goes on in nature in general, in untrammeled nature, unaffected by humans. And so you could still give Darwin his out that in the natural world this didn't apply. It was in the 1970s and 80s that this began to change. And probably the two most significant events in that regard were first the now famous work of Peter and Rosemary Grant in the Galapagos, where they studied populations of Darwin's finches on a tiny island in the Galapagos. They followed them over 40 years. And what they discovered studying the this population was that the environment changed very radically from one year to the next. In one year there would be a very big drought and the seeds would disappear and only the only seeds left would be very large seeds. And so only the, the birds with the biggest beaks could crack, crack the seeds and so natural selection very, very strongly favored birds with big beaks. And sure enough, in the next year there was a big evolutionary jump. The population had bigger beaks. But a few years later, there would be incredible rains, and there would be a huge amount of seeds produced, most of them small. And then it was the birds with the little beaks that could quickly manipulate the little seeds that had the advantage. And a year later, the population had evolved again. So they demonstrated that evolution in natural context, something unaffected by humans, could occur very rapidly. At the same time, there were some famous experiments in Trinidad on guppies, where scientists noticed that in the absence of predators, the guppies were very colorful because females prefer colorful males. But in pools where there were predators, the guppies were much blander. Well, they did a simple experiment. They moved a population of guppies from a pool with predators to another pool a little higher up the, the mountain with, where there were no predators. And very quickly, those guppies evolved to be very colorful over the course of just two years. And so, again, this was an example from nature not affected by human pollution or other things where evolution occurred very rapidly. And the result was that we realized that in this case, Darwin was wrong. That when natural selection is strong, when conditions change to a great extent, populations quickly evolve adaptations. Well, the last 30 years have seen a series of uh, more and more research demonstrating rapid evolution 
all around us. And I can, t I can tell you from my own experience, 20 years ago, I published a paper in which we documented that lizards placed on tiny little islands in the Bahamas would adapt very quickly over the course of about 10 years to the islands they lived on. We took them from places where they lived on big trees and we put them on tiny islands that had very narrow bushes. And over 10 years, they evolved significantly shorter legs. So as I said, we published this 20 years ago and it was a big deal. Uh, the New York Times covered it. It was on the front page of the Boston Globe, USA Today, uh, ABC News almost sent a film crew to the Bahamas where we were working to film us when the paper came out. So it was a big deal. Evolution occurred rapidly. Well, that was 20 years ago. The same paper today would get almost no attention. It's, it has become the expectation that if you study populations in a changing environment, you will see uh, rapid change. It, we, we now have scores, hundreds of papers demonstrating this. And so we realized evolution can occur very rapidly. Yet, despite this realization, no one has, well, I shouldn't say no one, very few people have taken it the next logical step to consider what's happening just around us where we live. So think about the animals that live just around you. You look out your, your window into your backyard. There are squirrels running up and down the trees. There's, well, if you might recall the famous New York, the New York City pizza rat, a video of a rat running downstairs in the subway with a big slice of pizza in its mm -hmm. mouth. All the animals living around us are facing new environments. They're coping with new food, new structures, new places to hide, in many cases, new temperatures. These are radically different environments. And if we, as we now believe, if, if natural selection causes populations to adapt to new conditions, why shouldn't it be happening to those species living around us in the very new conditions? For a long time, people didn't think about that. I think the, the real, the, I think that the reason people didn't think about that is that they just assumed that the species living around us were those that happened to have the traits that allowed them to survive in human settings. That mm -hmm. those just by chance, squirrels had, we have a term in evolutionary biology, it's not used very much anymore, it's called pre-adapted. The idea is that a population already has the traits that just happen to make it uh, do well in a new environment. And I think that's what most people believed about urban plants and animals. The ones we see around us are just the ones that happen to have the traits that allow them to live in our cities and in our environments. But really, there's no reason to believe this. Why shouldn't they be adapting to our conditions just like any other, any other evolutionary situation? Mm -hmm. And so th this is the situation that scientists are now beginning to study, to look at urban species to see if they actually are adapting to modern day situations. So let me give you an example from the lizards that I study. I mentioned them once already. My research looks at a type of lizard they are called anoles that occur in the Caribbean and Central and South America and in the southeastern United States. And there are 400 species of these lizards. And so I've spent much of my career studying how this particular type of lizard has diversified and how particular species are adapted to the parts of the environment they use. But one, the one uh, phenomenon we see regularly is you go to, say, Puerto Rico, where there are 10 species of these lizards, and you go into the forest there, and say you, you walk into the, the rainforest, and you sit quietly. After a few minutes, the species, the lizards forget you're there, and they become active, and you can start seeing them. And what you see is that the species have adapted to using different parts of the habitat. There's one high in the trees that has big towpads that let it 
cling to smooth surfaces high up. There's one on twigs with short legs to move very carefully on the very narrow surfaces it uses. There's another one on the tree trunk near the ground that has very long legs and it allows it to run very rapidly down to the ground to capture prey and to confront uh, other males and so on. So each species has its own adaptations for the part of the environment it uses. When you go into the cities in Puerto Rico, you don't see all the species. In fact, you see primarily one species, the tree trunk near the ground specialist. And that's the one you see everywhere. It's on the buildings, it's on the trees in the streets, it's on the fences. You find it all over the place. And I and many of my colleagues just assume, well, this, this species is pre-adapted for living in cities. Its adaptations for living on big trees make it suited for living in cities. And we didn't think about whether it was actually adapting. Well, no one thought about that until recently when a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts, a woman named Kristen Winchell, decided to study city lizards in Puerto Rico. And so what she did was she focused on this one species, it's called the crested anole, and she compared the crested anoles in three different cities in Puerto Rico, and for each city she studied a population out in the nearby forest. And so her question was, have they changed from the forest to the city in three separate comparisons? Mm -hmm. And what she found was in each case they had changed. The, the lizards in the city had evolved longer legs, presumably useful for hanging on to really broad surfaces like walls, and they had evolved bigger toe pads, again presumably to hang on to the smooth surfaces in cities. And so she had demonstrated that, that they had evolved to adapt to living in cities. It wasn't just a matter of them being pre-adapted. They had evolved, and that's why they're doing so well in cities. And she's now looking at another aspect of their adaptation, which is their physiology. Because cities tend to be, to, tend to be warmer than surrounding forests, so they're probably having to deal with hotter temperatures. Have they adapted to tolerate higher temperatures? And my understanding is the preliminary work shows that they've adapted in this way as well. We can imagine lots of other ways these lizards may be adapting to living in urban settings. One particularly interesting one is that these are, these are diurnal lizards. They are active during the day, and then at night they, they sleep. But in cities there are lots of lights, and people regularly see lizards active at night under lights. They'll be on a wall right around a light fixture, and as, as insects are attracted, they catch the insects and eat them. So they found a new niche. And so is it that they're just taking advantage of what's there, or are they adapting to these new conditions? We can well imagine that there are changes in their visual system to let them see perhaps under dimmer light, or maybe in, to be active at cooler nighttime temperatures. We don't know, but there are lots of aspects of living uh, in the city that these lizards may be adapting to, and Kristen and her colleagues are just beginning to look at that. Actually, I should say the nighttime work is being done by someone named Jason Colby at the University of Rhode Island. So that's just one example, but re in recent years we found, uh, scientists have found lots of interesting examples of adaptation to cities. And just to give you a few a quick a few examples, some researchers in Europe discovered that there was a species of plant that grows in the sidewalk, in the cracks in the sidewalk. Now, normally, that species has very small seeds that the wind blows away and it lands somewhere and then germinates. But that's not a very good strategy if you're in a parking lot, say, where the whole place is concrete because you're likely just to land on, on concrete. And so the, the, the urban populations have evolved the bigger seeds that don't get blown by the wind, they just drop down. And so they're much more likely to land in a little patch of dirt and be able to germinate. And so a clear evolutionary uh, difference adapted to where they live. Another example of plants is that uh, researchers in Canada 
compared a type of plant that occurs in a gradient from out in, the, in, the, in nature towards the center of the city. And they looked at a number of cities, including New York and Boston and several others. And what they found is in almost every case, as the populations got closer to the city center, the plants were able to tolerate colder temperatures. They had physiological changes, actually genetically based changes, that let them tolerate colder temperatures. Probably that's a result of the fact that cities don't have as much snow cover, so the ground, snow insulates the ground in the winter, so the ground is colder in cities, and the plants had adapted to withstand that. Uh, just a couple, one more example from, uh, from animals that I think is particularly interesting. Think about roads, for example, in northern areas. In the winter, lots of chemicals get thrown onto roads uh, to, to de-salt, to deal with ice and so on. It runs off the roads and runs into the surrounding area. And so bodies of water near roads tend to be pretty polluted. Well, some researchers looked at frogs and salamanders that breed in these ponds. And what they found was, number one, it's a pretty tough place to live for an amphibian. But they do persist. And if you study the larvae that develop in those ponds, sure enough, they've evolved physiological capacity to <clears throat> and about physiological capacity to, to, to adapt to these heavy, these uh, polluted waterways. And so they've adapted to living in these circumstances. So these are just a few of an increasing number of examples showing that animals and plants are adapting to living in our urban settings. And so, but it, we're just scraping the surface of examples. People are just now realizing there's an interesting phenomenon going right out, going on right out going on right under our noses that is worth investigation. So the examples I've been talking about are examples of evolution by natural selection. We all know natural selection favors individuals that can survive better and reproduce better, and they pass on their traits to the next generation. This is what Darwin proposed. But there's more to evolution than natural selection. There are other ways that populations can evolve, and these may be relevant to, to uh, living in cities as well. For example, one thing that evolutionary biologists have long been aware of is that small isolated populations tend to, to diverge genetically from other populations. And the reason is that through time, random events will happen. A particular mutation might come along that's not necessarily beneficial, but just due to happenstance, it becomes established in the population. Or conversely, a mutation might disappear just due to bad luck, the individuals that have that, that allele, it's a technical term, all die out and, the and that allele is lost from the population. This phenomenon, which is called genetic drift, is particularly common in small populations, random fluctuations. What that means is that if you have isolated populations, they, they can become different genetically over time. Well, researchers in New York City realized that there are many parks in New York City that have become isolated from each other. And the animals that live there used to occur throughout Manhattan, but Manhattan is now mostly a city with these little patches of forest. And so they went to, to look at the populations in these different patches, and sure enough, they're genetically different. They looked at a type of rodent, the white-footed mouse, that doesn't live in the city, but just uh, in the city itself, but just the little parks. And sure enough, they're genetically different from one one park to the next within the city. 
people are looking about the subways. Can you see genetic connectedness of, of rats and other things in the subways as well? So genetic connection and isolation is affecting the genetics, not just mice, the research also by salamanders, on salamanders has shown the same thing. So the fact of changing the, the geography of a city of populations is affecting the characteristics of those populations as well. However, there's the flip side of this, and that is that another thing that occurs in evolution is mixing together of different populations, populations that for some reason have evolved differences, and then if you allow them to contact each other, their genes will intermingle. And this too is happening in cities, and one particular example comes from my own work, again with Jason Colby at the University of Rhode Island and a number of others. We looked at a lizard that is native to Cuba. It's called the brown anole. And it has been introduced into Florida, and it actually has spread throughout Florida, and it's moving west into the Gulf states and up into as far north as South Carolina. It's an invasive species. In Cuba, Anola sagari is genetically different from one region of the country to the other. So throughout the island of Cuba, they're genetically differentiated populations. Well, what Jason's research demonstrated is that there have been many introductions of the brown anole to, to Miami, and those introductions have come from different parts of Cuba. And so basically Miami has become a brown anole melting pot, that all of the genetic differences on different parts of Cuba have all been brought together in Miami, producing a hyper-variable population that is different from any population in, my, uh, in the native land in Cuba, and perhaps has greater capacity for adaptation because it has so many different genetic variants for natural selection to work on. You know, how do these introductions occur? Well, these lizards are great stowaways, that they get carried in shipments of lumber or particularly in, in plants, that they, they get shipped around a lot in nursery plants where you take the plant and there might be a female hunkered down or probably more commonly, she's laid eggs in the pots and then the plants get shipped around and the eggs hatch out. Mm -hmm. And so they're very good at stowing away and, uh, and then establishing themselves. Mm -hmm. So these, this mixing of populations is also occurring, leading to genetically different, different uh, more, ro more genetically rich populations. Mm -hmm. Evolutionary biologists have become very interested in recent years in a higher level analog of this, and that is the mixing of different species, the phenomenon of hybridization, when two different species interbreed and are able to successfully reproduce. In the old days, the traditional wisdom was that hybridization was, in a sense, a negative thing, a, a constraining force. It might take two species and cause them to coalesce into a single species by, by amalgamating their genomes. And so evolutionary biologists used to think of, of hybridization as a, a restraint on evolution. Mm -hmm. But that viewpoint is changing now as there have been a number of well-documented examples illustrating that hybridization can provide a new a new jolt of energy to a, a species can bring in new genetic variants that can allow a species to adapt in new ways. And so they're looking at hybridization now in a positive light. And that too is something that is happening in cities around us. And uh, my favorite example of this is one from uh, is one from the animal that everyone knows from cartoons, the wily coyote. The coyote is an animal that. Traditionally, it's from the Great Plains states in the Midwestern and Western United States. And 100 years ago, the coyote was not a very large animal. It was about the size of maybe a border collie. And it ate mostly 
birds and rodents and, and relatively small, relatively small prey. In the last century, even in the last 50 years, however, the coyote has spread across the entire United States. It is spread, it covers the entire United States, including being found frequently now in cities. It's frequently in Los Angeles, in Chicago. There's a story about riding the subways in Portland, Oregon. It's definitely in New York City. It's even shown up in Central Park a few times. Moreover, the coyote is not this is not your father's coyote. This is a very different animal. It is much larger than the coyote used to be, maybe the size of a German shepherd now. It will eat, occasionally, it will take down deer and much larger prey. So it's a very different animal. And so the question is, how has the coyote changed so greatly over such a short period of time? And the answer seems to be, involve two factors. The first is opportunity. We humans were very successful in eliminating the coyote's major nemesis, the gray wolf. Gray wolves, being larger than coyotes, both competed with them for food, but also regularly killed coyotes. And so when wolves were around, coyotes were small. But you get rid of the wolf, suddenly there's this great opportunity for coyotes to, to eat food and so on, and to evolve to get bigger, to eat the bigger food that the wolves aren't taking, such as deer. But then you might ask, where do the genes come from to, get, to evolve to get large? Are they just mutations for larger size that then get, get taken advantage of by natural selection? Well, that can happen. It might play a role. But it seems more likely in the case of a coyote that it's the result of hybridization. This is what I was getting to. The genes are coming in from coyotes occasionally mating with wolves and getting their larger size genes. Or more importantly, in most cases, mating with domestic dogs. That coyotes mate with German Shepherds, with Great Danes, large dogs. They're getting the dog genes for being large, and that has been responsible for how the coyote has been able to evolve to a large size. And perhaps, we don't have evidence for this, but perhaps it's also responsible for them living in urban areas. So coyotes are now quite common in cities, and they're regu regularly seen in, in large cities throughout the United States. And they're a fascinating case study in adaptation to living in, in and around humans. Well, all of these examples show that, that species are actually adapting to the human environment, just as we would expect if you think about it. Now, does that mean that if you see a population in a city that is different, is that evidence for evolutionary adaptation? And the answer to that is no. It may suggest adaptation, but there is another explanation. And the other explanation is uh, relies on the fact that Organisms with a, a genetically identical organisms can produce different phenotypes, different behaviors. They can look different depending on how they grow up. This is the old nature versus nurture debate that we've heard about in many respects. But the environment in which an organism grows up affects how it will develop into an adult. And so if you think about, for example, weightlifters, if you, if you spend your life lifting weights, you'll develop very big muscles and also very thick bones. But that is not a genetic change. You have not evolved. Those differences will not be passed on to your offspring. It's just a, environment, just a response to the environment you've exposed yourself to. Or in a little more clinical terms, if you think about a plant, as, you, as everyone knows, if you don't water the plant or if you put it in the shade, it won't grow as tall as if you give it a lot of, a lot of fertilizer and water and put it in the sun. So organisms have the capacity to develop in different ways. It's a phenomenon that technically we call phenotypic plasticity. 
And it turns out that some of the examples that we now know of phenotypic plasticity are quite remarkable. If, for example, if you raise a tadpole, a, a young frog, in water in which there are chemicals of a predator, in other words, the predator isn't there, but the smell of the predator is in the water, the tadpole will grow a bigger tail, which allows it to swim more rapidly. And the same thing happens with snails exposed to water predators, they grow a thicker shell. And so these are just responses that, that an, individ, an individual organism can make. It's flexible in how it grows. And so what that means is if we see populations in cities that seem different from their relatives out in the forest, we can't assume that those are genetic differences. It might just be a result of phenotypic plasticity. Now, how the capacity for phenotypic plasticity itself evolves is an interesting topic, and one that I'm not going to get into. The fact is many organisms have a capacity to produce different body shapes, different physiologies, depending on their conditions. So there are lots of interesting situations that we see in cities, and the question is, are these the result of evolution or just of plasticity? Just to name a couple, it turns out that many species of birds and of frogs in cities will change their call that they make to make it higher pitched or lower pitched, but basically so it can be heard against the background noise of the city, of cars going by and so on. And so they'll alter their, their calling behavior so they can communicate. Is this a genetic evolutionary change or is it just somehow they have the ability to learn to change without without evolving? We don't know the answer, but that's, that's something that people are currently, currently researching. Uh, let me just give you one example from my own work about the role of the environment in inducing changes. This actually applies to, uh, applies to the uh, experiment that I, I mentioned earlier, where we found that when we put lizards on islands with narrow vegetation, they got shorter legs. For years, when I gave the uh, when I presented this work at conferences, people would, someone would always ask me, someone would raise their hand, and it was usually a pesky botanist. And they would ask, could this be the result of phenotypic plasticity? Could it be that when a lizard grew up using narrow surfaces, it just grows shorter legs? Well, to me, that sounded ridiculous, but eventually I decided we needed to do an experiment to find out. And so we did, we got baby lizards, we grew them at the St. Louis Zoo, and we grew them either in some aquaria, they only had a very narrow dowel, whereas in another aquarium, they had a much broader, a two by four to sit on. And we let them grow up from babies to adults, and at the end of the experiment, we measured their legs. To my amazement, the ones that had grown up using broad surfaces actually had longer legs. And so to some extent, the ability that there is a latent flexibility in limb length that is affected by the environment in which a lizard grows up. And so these things do happen. Well, how do you study the, whether, say you see a population that is different in a city than in the forest, how do you determine whether that's an evolutionary change or not? The old way of doing that, what we did with the lizards, is we basically got individuals and raised them in a similar, well, this isn't quite what I did, but a common way to do this is to raise individuals in what's called a common garden. So you get all the individuals, you put them in the same circumstances, and raise them to adults. And if the environment is what's responsible for the differences you see in nature, then when you grow them in the same environment, they should grow up identically. And if they don't, 
then the inference is that the differences must be the results of genes because they're not affected by the environment. And so that's what many people have done. They find sometimes the differences are genetically based, sometimes they're just phenotypic plasticity. More recently, with the incredible capacity we have to actually look at the genes themselves and genomes, people now actually look for the genetic, uh, the genetic, the, people now look for the genes responsible for the trait, the genes for leg length, or the genes for color, or whatever, to see if they're differentiated genetically. It's hard to do, but increasingly we're able to do it. And then you can directly test whether populations have evolved genetic differences or not. And more and more, this is becoming feasible. So I have to say I never thought that I would be interested in what's going on around in cities. It, like everyone else, I didn't pay much attention. Sure, squirrels are entertaining to look at and raccoons and so on, but they're just the animals that live around us. They're not, they're not the subject of scientific study. But the way I got to this is I started studying lizards. I, I studied, uh, I was an undergraduate at Harvard University, so I took classes from some of the greats in the field, from Stephen Jay Gould, from Richard Lewinton, and from many others who taught me the dynamics of evolutionary change. And there were great debates going on at the time. Is evolution rapid or slow? Gould argued that evolution could occur very quickly. Other people thought it had to be slow and gradual, like Darwin said. And they argued about the importance of genetic, uh, the genetic basis of change versus phenotypic plasticity and so on. I myself studied these lizards I've mentioned already. I've studied them my entire career. The lizards are a great example of adaptation. We see it occurring all around us. And as I said, my research took me to the Caribbean. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Where we saw that the species adapted to different parts of the environment. And the really cool thing about these lizards is you want, if, if you go to the other islands, say you go to Cuba or Hispaniola or Jamaica, you see the same set of habitat specialists have evolved on each island. So for example, if you look at the twig specialist in Puerto Rico, a very slender lizard, very well camouflaged because it can't run away fast. It's very slow. It has very slow legs and it creeps very slowly on narrow twigs. Highly adapted to living on twigs. Well, if you go to Jamaica or Cuba or Hispaniola, there's a species that looks nearly identical, living in the same habitat, behaving in the same way. But they're not the same species. They're not even closely related. They have independently evolved these adaptations. And we see that in each one of the habitat specialist types. They evolve on every aisle. Mm -hmm. And so that strongly suggests that natural selection really shapes these lizards in very deterministic ways. That, in turn, led me to the idea of maybe we could do experiments on the lizards to actually test how they adapt to new circumstances. And to be honest, I didn't, uh, the idea of doing an experiment didn't come to me out of the blue. It turns out that a colleague of mine, a very prominent ecologist named Thomas Shainer, had set up an experiment where he introduced lizards to islands in the Caribbean and in the Bahamas, the islands I talked about. He didn't do it to study evolution. He did it to study their impact on the ecology. But when I read the paper, I said, that's an, an experiment. These islands differ in their vegetational characteristics. They certainly differ, differ from the source population where the lizards came from. He set up an evolution experiment 10 years ago. And I approached him, and I, I was just finishing graduate school, and I said, has it occurred to you that this experiment that you've set up to study population biology and ecology is actually an evolution experiment? And his response to me was what I could have only hoped he would say, but never thought he would, which was, well, why don't you come work in my lab and study that? 
And so I did. And we studied it, and it was an experiment. Effectively, we found that they had changed. And then we did many more experiments of these sorts. And so I realized from that experience that evolution could occur very rapidly. So, so when I was an undergraduate at Harvard from 1980 to 1984, three of the, actually four of the biggest lights in all of evolutionary biology in the 20th century were all there at Harvard at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. Ernst Meyer, the man who more than anyone else had written the book on how evolution proceeds. Then E.O. Wilson, who had come up with a variety of remarkable ideas from how ants communicate to sociobiology to conservation biology. Stephen Jay Gould, punctuate equilibrium and many other ideas, very much antithetical to what Wilson was arguing. And then Richard Lewinton, the population geneticist. And so to have them and the people who then hung around them all around was an incredibly exciting atmosphere, particularly because they didn't agree with each other. And you heard stories about how their disagreements were, were sometimes rather heated. But it just made it an incredibly exciting intellectual atmosphere. And really, you wanted to learn, well, here's this argument. What are the points? Where are they coming from? How much is data and how much is, is rhetoric and polemics? So it was a remarkably exciting time. I don't think there will ever be a department like that again that has four such amazing luminaries, certainly in the field of evolutionary biology. Why should we care if squirrels are evolving in New York City or rats or cockroaches? Uh, who, is there any greater significance to this? And I think there is in a number of different ways. Um, the first way, just scientifically, these are the experiments that we would love to do as scientists, but we can't do them ethically. We can't move uh, populations into new places and see how they evolve, because it's just, it would be unethical. You're introducing invasive species. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that cities and urban settings are doing those experiments for us. They are subjecting organisms to novel circumstances and we're seeing, can they evolve? And if so, how they evolve? So from a, a scientific level, these are just fantastic opportunities to study the process of evolution, to understand how it, how it works. More specifically, beyond just the general academic interest, these are critical times for the world. We are messing up the environment in many ways. Many species are threatened, whether they can survive or not. And so we need to know what determines when, well, why is it that some species can adapt and others can't? And how do they adapt? And are there things we can do to promote that, to make it more likely that species will be able to su survive in new conditions? Now, you could take a very uh, uh, rose-tinted view of this and say, why do we care about the environment? Species will adapt to it. That's what you're showing. Well, the answer is most species won't adapt. Some will, but most won't. And that's why cities aren't full of giraffes and elephants and and many other animals, they can't adapt to our surroundings, so they haven't adapted. But by studying the evolutionary process going on in cities, it's a great opportunity to understand what determines whether one species can make it and another won't, and what we might do to promote the, the persistence of these species. So, th so these are, are two practical reasons why studying evolution in cities is of scientific value, but I think there are also more ethereal reasons in two, in two respects. One is, of course, understanding ourselves. We are a great product of evolutionary adaptation. We are one of the great success stories of evolution. Over a relatively short geological period, over a few million years, we went from being an, an ape-like animal on all fours to standing erect, to evolving incredible capacities and dominating the world. I think everyone would like to know just how that worked. And studying the evolutionary process 
even if it's squirrels and cockroaches and pigeons and lizards, ultimately it's the same processes that led to us. And so that's how we, we were going to understand our own evolution. Even beyond that, though, most people live today in cities, and their experience with wildlife is mostly what they see around them. I was just driving yesterday, and I saw some Canadian geese by the roadside, and people were there looking at them. They're fascinated in the animals and plants around them. By understanding the extent to which they are evolving, that makes the story that much richer. It is a sublime sense of this world around us. It isn't just set in stone. It is changing. We can see that in the species around us in the cities. And I think people, an appreciation for that will give them a richer comprehension of the natural world, and it will certainly a richer understanding of evolution. Certainly there are parts of, uh, there are parts of society here in the United States and elsewhere that have their doubts about evolution. Perhaps if they can actually understand that it's happening all around us, even the animals they see every day, perhaps that will help influence at least some people to understand the role of evolution in the world as it is today.